pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Hello, folks. This is Sean Zock speaking. Dylan DeChair on the other line. This is the drop zone. And I know we're coming to you a day late. Dylan, my brother texted me furiously. He had a long drive today, and he said, where the hell is this week's episode? Can you explain to the people why we're just like one day late, 24 hours late from doing yeah. a Sunday night late podcast? I got to be honest, Sean. I, I kind of like the one day late. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> this is something we're going to have to think about going forward. I do apologize to those of you that were uh, searching for Drop Zone US Open recap in your feeds this morning. But long story short, Sean, we were both typing away uh, late into the night last night. Uh, you were writing on Rory. I was writing on Ricky. Together, we were trying to trying to bring you a little flavor of of what happened this week uh, through the lens of of two of the week's heartbreaking losers. So yeah, yeah. Big so that's losers. why. And then also baked into that is the fact that you took a red eye back to Chicago because you are about to embark on a wild summer journey we should get into that and uh also i woke up this morning after just a couple hours of sleep and went and played riviera in a media event casual casual riviera is not a great golf course to play on a couple hours of sleep but (laughs) got it you you play it when you can um yeah so yeah that's why we're coming to you a day late but i think and i hope that with an extra day we will have the benefit of perspective and we will have the benefit of not being squeezed in between a story deadline and like falling asleep. So totally. here we are. Yeah. I, uh, so I took that red eye back to Chicago. I, you know, filed my story at like 4am Chicago time. Um, and you filed yours like somehow multiple hours after that still into the night. Um, but I Here's got the thing back. on that. It's just a little <laughs> peek behind the curtain. It was there's a moment in a West Coast major. There's a certain point in the night where you're like, "Well, everyone's asleep. Yeah, no one's <laughs> All of our read readers right are now. asleep. So if it's 11 p.m. on the West Coast, then you kind of just have like four hours before people on the East Coast are going to wake up. So you went to the airport. We went back to our Airbnb. Um, I stayed up with James and uh, Darren. Claire Rogers went to bed, but we were just kind of debriefing on the week and uh, talking about content and, you know, musing on a whole bunch of like deep, nerdy, insidery, you know, uh, I don't even really know. We were just breaking down what had happened. So then it's like, then it's one thirty in the morning Pacific coast. And then I'm like, all right, I, I got to go kind of put the bow on this story so that it can go live at, at 3 a.m. Pacific, 6 a.m. Anyway, we'll have an entirely opposite dynamic when we're at the open next month, but that's kind of what happens with us at a West Coast major. Uh, how do you want to break this down? Should we start with the winner, the the, the leading man, I guess? Yeah, I, th- I think just a, a fun way to do it would just be uh, the good and the bad from the U.S. Open. So, yeah, why don't you why don't you bring us some Wyndham, who I think you would define as good. And if you want to get even more specific than that, I would welcome that. Um, like what sure. 
what was good about Wyndham Clark on Sunday? Well, I think Wyndham Clark's week was good because it started out hanging out with us. Uh, for people who weren't following along with every press conference, his first presser came on Thursday uh, late evening, and he was in the late early crowd, and um, no one was in the press conference. His, his manager uh, or agent was in there. The USGA people were in there. And you and I saw him walk in to give a press conference after shooting six under, and no one was waiting for him. <laughs> so we went in there, and we basically recorded what amounted to a podcast with him. Um, and I just think that that's kind of – that was really fitting for how um, his week, I think, will be remembered in some way. Like, he really splashed on the scene for some people. You know, a lot of writers were not thinking Wyndham Clark could do this. They obviously weren't in his press conference on Thursday. It grew a little bit more on Friday. It grew a little bit more on Saturday. And then suddenly he's he's doing the, the winning press conference on Sunday, which you said was really, really special. Yeah, it is kind of a funny way this all works. Is like there's a little bit of a community aspect to the whole press conference thing. Like it does everyone good if Wyndham Clark gets asked questions, right? But... <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily do anyone good to go asking those questions themselves. It just enters like the public domain. But anyway, it was pretty fun. We normally, if it's a busy press conference, you get like a question and maybe a follow up, and that's it. Cause there's a lot of other people asking questions in this Wyndham one. I don't know. We each got like, I asked three and then you asked three and then I asked a couple more and then you asked another one. And so, yeah, it was pretty fun. Point being, drop zone was ahead of the curve and or we just felt some responsibility to uh, make sure Wyndham Clark did not have an empty press conference. But I just rewatched his final one because I missed it in real time. And it's good. He's such an earnest guy. I was thinking this is this leaderboard was just an incredibly earnest leaderboard, um, you know, between Rory and Ricky and Wyndham and, and Scotty. Um it really struck me the way he talked about a his early career, his college career, uh, how angry he was after his his mom's passing when he was at mm-hmm. school, and and the way it would manifest on the golf course. He talked about, you know, he would break clubs, he would get so mad, he would get in his car after uh, rounds and just rage, and uh, and then. And then he talked about the mental game of the present of his pro career and, and specifically of closing out a major on a Sunday. And, and he described his mind racing and going other places. And, and then he described what he's been working on with his mental coach, which, which is to basically restate your goals all the time and to be cocky, to outwardly be cocky. And, uh, I thought that that was really insightful because it's so hard to know the correct balance there. And we analyze the hell out of other golfers approaches. I mean, Rory is, is obviously the golfer that gets analyzed the most. And that idea of being cocky is something we've been rooting for, for Rory. And it's one of those things that's pretty hard to identify whether someone's doing it or not. But Wyndham Clark just, seemed like he he had the moxie to pull off some pretty gutsy shots uh especially after he had hit poor shots 
Yeah. And uh, and that's that was good to me. That definitely falls under the good category. Yeah, the unraveling that can happen at a U.S. Open is probably greater than I don't know. It's it's the same at any major championship, but like those events elevate the potential for unraveling. And he could have unraveled on the eighth hole, <laughs> um, misses his approach by, as Paul Azinger said, a yard, and then whiffs. Uh, you know, a cup basically twice, um, but certainly once full whiff. And, um, that's the kind of stuff that would rock your short game. It should rock your short game, but somehow his short game was unbothered and he makes great up and downs on nine on 11. Yeah. First on, on eight, right? First eight that up too. and down on eight for bogey. That was huge. Yeah. And then yeah. nine, what? yeah 11 that one was ridiculous yeah yeah uh and so that's what my big takeaway was from um going back and watching the back nine today because i was walking with rory every step of the way didn't get to see much of wyndham clark um but just kind of kept checking my phone and he's like god he got up and down again gosh he got up and down again and it made me wonder like will Rory go back and watch the highlights and will he will he take note of what Wyndham Clark did to beat him because we are anxious for a McElroy major win and these guys that are beating him Wyndham Clark Cameron Smith are doing special things to beat him and uh I just wonder if if that matters at all to Rory but anyway in terms of good or bad Wyndham Clark's short game Wyndham Clark's press conferences as the week went on Wyndham Clark's psyche very very good um state of colorado his, first ever yeah. men's major champion his uh his immediate emotion right just bawling immediately um we we always kind of like to see how much these guys are affected by this stuff um you know he's a guy that was he needed to be told like everyone was always telling him that he's he's great that he's better than a lot of people, that, that he's getting beat by people that are worse than him. And he always had a hard time believing it himself. Um, those people are hard to understand. <laughs> like, it's really hard. But you know this, being a, a, a pro golfer, like, there are times when you just, you're really good, but you can't believe in yourself. Um, and that's what Wyndham Clark battled. And now he is like, He's crested the the mountaintop, and uh, he's going to be on the Ryder Cup team. He's going to be in the Masters next year. Um, he's now what? He's he's he has a great fall. Like suddenly his name's on the Player of the Year ballot. Like everything's coming up. Wyndham Clark. God, that's a that's a great point. Like this guy is now having one of the best seasons of anyone. Um. He is going to be on the Ryder Cup team, 100%. And and we knew that there was going to be some turnover from last year's President's Cup team. We're already starting to see it shake out, but this definitely felt like a moment where it's official. There's a new face on the scene. There's a new face on that team. Um, Ricky Fowler making a, a case, I guess, to move up again in the standings there. Like there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play just even in these final few groups uh, on Sunday. Uh, what else was good, Sean? Let's keep it positive for a second. Is there anything else that, that, that was positive from this week? 
Uh, I don't have to be a but Wyndham Clark, right? I can I does can not know. No, we can move, we'll we we'll touch more on Wyndham Clark, but I think that's a good start. What was good, uh, I think, was Rory's definitive nature afterwards. His own self confidence. I mm. I can't imagine it's super high right now. I mean, this is the third week in a row that he has been within two shots of the lead after 54 holes or in the lead. Um, and it didn't get it done, but he said afterward, like I would go through a hundred of these days to have that major championship again. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was saying when it happens, not if I think in the past couple of years, like he started to, when he really started to open up, it really sounded like he was considering the if, <laughs> as if it might not happen again. Um, and right now, he clearly thinks it, it will when it happens. Um, I liked hearing that from him. Whether or not he has to say it to convince himself, um, he, he, I think his approach, as much as he stiff-armed the media in some ways, I think it was re- what he needed right now. I think he needs to just dive in on himself be extremely selfish be greedy if you have to focus on your own time and um that's not great for our jobs but he he is uh, once again one of the most interesting people to cover so i would say rory's approach is good yeah Uh, and i think it's not even bad for our jobs you know like ultimately what's good for our jobs is rory being a competitive golfer doing interesting things out there and and there's no real risk of Rory stopping saying interesting things. Um, I think that you got to pull them out of him. You got to yeah, ask the right questions, him, but also we don't, we don't need to hear from Rory five times every week. You know, <laughs> every point. time he plays, we don't need a, we don't need a, a full state of the union. And I think that there was just too much asked for him. Sometimes when people get asked questions, then they, yeah, they give answers that, lead to no further questions and Rory's the opposite when Rory gives answers then people have more questions so I think he went I think he was intentional about stopping that process stopping that uh reinforcing wheel so I liked that I like his liked his definitive nature I mean I liked his ball striking it's a it's a pretty funny thing about golf where the people that come the closest get the most scrutiny and get the most heat. Um, Luke Curdenine summarized this well, actually, in an article, but I happened to be standing with him while Rory was playing the 14th hole, and the 14th was the pivotal hole of the tournament. Wyndham Clark hit it on the green from 282 yards, left himself with an easy two-putt birdie. Rory hit it in the left rough off the tee, laid up, hit his wedge in the in the long grass above the bunker and made bogey and um that was a moment where if rory finds the fairway the entire nature of the tournament changes there were a couple moments like that there was also number eight where rory three putted for par and there was number six where rory's tee shot was just a little bit loose so there was a way that he was going to hit the ball pretty much how he hit the ball and putt pretty much how he putted. Like he didn't have to make much of anything to win this golf tournament. He just had to take advantage of these 
half par holes, these scoring holes a little bit better. And, um, I don't know. It's one of those things where like with Tommy Fleetwood, uh, at the Canadian open, you, you don't really know unless you're a guy standing over the ball with a club in your hand. But in that moment, I felt like, wow, why doesn't Rory just roast some long iron down there? He was what just under 300 yards to the hole, get something down there, get up and down. It's the what if game. We have no idea what would have happened if he did that, but 14 felt like absolutely the pivotal hole. Yeah, well, and it felt extra pivotal, what, 10 minutes after Rory stepped off the green, <laughs> less than that, when Wyndham Clark hits his second onto that and just has yeah. an easy, easy, easy two-putt birdie. Um, so that's kind of when it felt like the tournament was won in a way, but it really wasn't won until Wyndham Clark two-putted from 60 feet. Uh, what was good about Ricky? Uh, what was good about Ricky was his first three days. I mean, his first round, we should shout out Ricky shooting 62 at a U.S. Open course and really leading the way for Xander Shoffley to shoot 62 behind him, too. Those two guys were just head and shoulders above the rest of the field. They were five shots better than anyone else in their morning wave. So that was really good. And then the way he played on the lead on on Friday and Saturday to hold the lead going to Sunday was good. Um, I mean, a, a thing that I wrote about is sort of just Ricky Fowler, the human being, had a good week. It was just amazing watching him navigate everything that everyone wanted from him. And I think he always does this, but because he was in and around the lead, there were more asks, and also we were around to notice it more. Uh, but going and well, signing autographs after every round and going and – he just does the little things. It's like, oh, the, the USGA has someone that they want – to show around and it's uh some kid who's uh yeah who has some reason for being there and it's like oh hey ricky can you just come say hi to this person it'll make their day and he's like oh yeah of course that yeah. kind of stuff it's pretty crazy so he did that well what he did not do well sean was close out this golf tournament on sunday uh that that he's such a hard dude to read He's such a hard guy to read. I mean, I was walking with him all day on Sunday, and even when things were slipping away, it was hard to ever see a real reaction from him. And I, I was talking to some people that are that know him, and I was like, hey, have you guys ever seen Ricky get really mad? And no one could really think of a time. Like, he doesn't seem to have that freak-out mode. He hit some bad golf shots, and... I was re-watching his reaction to those shots, and again, not much. Um, so he shot 75. I think the course was harder at the end of the day, but it's worth noting that only three people shot higher than 75 on Sunday. He he kind of kept hanging around. Even when he made birdie at 14, that got him back into third, but then he made a couple bogeys coming home, ended up T5, which... Definitely felt worse than, than uh, should have. Like he played better golf than than a T five finish. So he was really all positive afterwards. Again, hard guy to read, almost like an unknowable character still. Um, and I wrote a little bit about that too for golf dot com. Um, but overall, it's got to be a step in the right direction. I think still, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he was. 
he was he was at his truest self when he was just acknowledging that it's good to be back in front of the press when yes. he's standing up at the top of his press conference and he's like yeah it's good to be back here in front of you guys because that means i'm doing something well um i think with a lot of hindsight you know we could be like hey you were making a lot of birdies you were also making a lot of bogeys, and then then we saw a lot more of that on Sunday. It's easy to to play that game where you look back at his second round, and his second round I think featured six birdies and five bogeys or something like that, maybe even more. Um, yeah, he had I think he had eight eight birdies. Yeah, he had eighteen birdies in the first thirty six holes, which is insane. But I think you just touched on it right there. I think you like you just nailed it. Of it's for someone like Rory, it's this complete tragic curse that the only thing he can do right now at majors is win them or lose them but for ricky he can gain relevance that's Mm -hmm. the thing that he just wants to be back in the game i think if you've if you've been out of it if you've fallen off the map like that you just want to be back in the conversation you want to be talked about when people are thinking about the Ryder cup yeah you want to be you want to be playing good enough golf to to justify all the rest of it and uh I think he's now doing that. Yeah. Uh, Scotty Scheffler was good for three days at putting and then kind of played a lot like uh, he has been playing. I don't think there's a whole lot more to add about that, but he has now finished in the top 12, what is it, 16 straight tournaments now? That is <laughs> he's, crazy. He's the best player in the world. There um, was something Ramish about this week, don't you think? Like, He's just elevating to the top of the leaderboard very quietly. I guess now yeah. that's just Scheffler-ish. Yeah, Scheffler-ish is the term. Uh, he uh, so Data Golf, right? You know they they rank players all time. Your all time peak. Um, and I think it's based off of like a twenty five rounds uh, stretch. Um, but Scheffler's it might be maybe even fifty rounds. I don't know. But Scheffler's uh, reached his all time peak right now, and. Uh, what I find interesting about that is that the numbers back it up, but his all-time peak for strokes gained per round is 2.81. And the same thing for John Rahm, who reached that peak in February at the Genesis Invitational. So we're, we're dealing with um, essentially like an aftershock, I think, in terms of who is the best player in the world. We had the earthquake that was John Rahm, and then the aftershock that is Scotty Scheffler is just as strong as Rahm was earlier this year um, for the PGA Tour hardos who follow it month in and month out. Um, I just get worried. I've been saying this week after week on the show. I get worried what we can do with his season if he doesn't win a major. He is, he is playing Tiger-esque golf. In a lot of ways, his putter has not always been there. It looked like he was there for three rounds this week. He did not win. One month from now, if he does not have a major to his name, what do we do with that season? I don't know. Like, the Players' Championship and Phoenix are not enough to call it an all-time season. But a major might help. Yeah, uh, it does ramp up the pressure for the Open where he's maybe the the playing field is a little bit more level um probably something like the u.s open or the way the pga championship was set up would be a more natural fit to separate a pure ball striker like scotty 
I mean, his Sunday was interesting. He made a few bombs. Like he he three putted twelve, I think, missed kind of a short putt, and then he made a fifty one footer on thirteen. There was a a bit of a bit in both camps, but those short putts seem to still be uh, a bit of an issue. Uh, I think, yeah, he's. I don't know what the equivalent would be, but it it makes me think of what Justin Thomas said last year at the end of his season, talking about, yeah, his season was frustrating and it kind of sucked, but at the same time he won a major. So that in and of itself makes it a successful season. And when you, when we think about golfers, big picture, that remains the way we think about them. Like, yes, we can, me and you can look at the data golf numbers and we can see that peak that Scheffler is playing at, but in terms of your your legacy, your reputation, it's still a trophy game. Kepka yep. has always harped on this, and he's been right about it. It's it's just a trophy counting contest, and yeah, you can you can have a nice ERA, or you can have a nice uh, I don't even I don't know. You can have a nice WAR in baseball, um, but at the end of the day, we're counting rings. Yep. Uh, was this a good golf course? Great question. I especially, think, especially for you, you played the other great golf course, the other PJ Tour golf course in the area today. Um, yeah. As you answer that, I would like to know which one you like more. Whew. Okay. Well, let me let me start by saying, I think that it's it's difficult to separate the golf course from the club number one and from the spectator experience number two and those are you able to do that with inextricably national uh yes because augusta national's goal is to put on the course is to display its course for visitors in the best possible way Mm -hmm. in some ways it's the opposite philosophy that lacc seemed to adopt this week like you kind of got the sense that a lot of lacc didn't want the u.s open there and maybe a contingent of the membership did i'm sure they did but it's clear that they wanted complete control over the ticketing and that seems pretty antithetical to what the u.s open is all about so i think there's going to be a lot of tough questions asked there already are of the usga um, and of the U.S. Open and what this relationship was like with LACC. I think that spectators had a really hard time because I think it's a challenging golf course, period. Um, but then there was there were just limited viewing opportunities and there weren't that many fans. So it was this tough combination of the atmosphere wasn't that great. And also it still wasn't that easy to see that many golf shots. We get spoiled. We get to walk inside the ropes. We get to, you know, jump a bunch of the the barriers that get in people's ways. And on Sunday, I think the atmosphere was massively better. It felt so, so much different and so much better. Um, but yeah, I think that that stuff was all a bit of a problem. And we're not going back there next year. Like the club could look completely different. The attitudes will, will look different. There will be different people in power when... We go back there in 2039. Who knows where me and you will be? <laughs> the drop zone is going to be triple platinum. Um, 
anyway, I thought I think the golf course was good. I really do. Yeah. I think they but I think the golf course is not that hard. Like I think Clear, the way clearly. they had it set up, it was really freaking hard. But I don't think naturally it's set up to be that hard. The yardage yeah. is one thing, those back tees are one thing, like having five hundred sixty yard par fours, that's that's really hard. But if you talk to people that play golf around LA, they're like, Yeah, that's not really that hard a course. The fairways are wide, a bunch of the holes are short, there's a bunch of birdie holes. They can get to the sixth green in one shot. They can get to the eighth in hitting three wood long iron. Uh, mm-hmm. They can they can reach the first in two shots, no problem. It's like if you hit the fairway, yeah, it's pretty scorable. So because of that, there's a lot of birdie holes. Because of that, you really kind of have to trick it up if you're going to get high scores and after the first day i feel like even the scoring would probably satisfy even the most bloodthirsty (laughs) fans right so that's a lot of filibustering to answer your question after playing riviera i think riviera is i think it's it strikes me as a better golf course it's it's definitely such a better spectator venue I really like the variety of LACC. It feels like you get a whole bunch of different terrain where Riviera is nice and cohesive and you get a a variety in, in types of holes, but But you're really operating in the same flat Valley. Um, So I like Riviera better. I think it's an awesome venue. I think it has, it hits the like swanky LA glamor in all the right way, uh, mm. in all the right ways. And I think LACC was still good, but, uh, but couldn't quite measure up, I guess. Yeah. Um, what about you? I adore differing takes. Yeah. I loved the pacing to how this tournament was set up on this golf course. Um, now, that does not mean I liked having all the birdies on the front nine, but I really enjoyed that it played into if you could go like if you're going to shoot 32 on any of the nines, it was probably going to be the front nine. And so the birdies are out there. If you need yeah, I don't to make know if a, anyone shot 32 on the back nine, maybe <laughs> one or two guys. But but if you're going to move up the leaderboard, it starts on the first hole absolutely starts on the first hole a bit of a handshake start for a lot of pros rory hit hit eight iron into this par five yesterday um and so it gets you kind of moving and then it really demands tee shots to some specific areas uh i talked to a number of players about this course and what makes it good or bad and i just found that to be such an interesting uh reporting journey because it started when Brooks Kepka said, I'm not a big fan of this place. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then the next day, Matt Fitzpatrick said, it's not my cup of tea. And then later that day, I happened to overhear Victor Hovland say, I do not like this place. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, gosh, this is interesting. Our players kind of turning on it. And, but I, I put in some due diligence and just started asking everyone who kind of finished their third round, do you like this golf course? And Bryson said, I really like this golf course. Mm. It makes you play all kinds of different shots. Uh, I asked Nick Hardy and 
this is a, a kid who's played in five U.S. Opens. And he said, I absolutely love this golf course. Keith Mitchell said he really, really likes it. He just wants the grass to be different, um, which is a like 600-level class of what makes a golf course. But um, I think Keith was on to something where he said – there's a difference between uh, a golf course that can be fun to play and then a golf course that has to host a competition. And when you have a competition, 156 players, and you have some blind tee shots and you have some fairways that all kind of funnel to the same area, there's going to be things that people dislike about that. But anyway, back to the pacing thing. I really enjoyed that. You had to score on the front and then you had to hold on for dear life on the back. And if you could shoot one under on the back nine, that was going to be really, really, really good. Um, and that there was bogey out there on every single hole in the back. I think the sixth hole, I don't think this is outrageous, but I think it, it might be one of my favorite golf holes in the world. Um, it just, I, I won't get to play it maybe the rest of my life, but it, it was so fun to watch the best players in the world play it. Um, and Yeah, so, let's stay on that for a second because – I agree. I think part of the key to it was the split. It was like, it wasn't obvious if players should go for it or not. And I think the numbers bore out for a couple of the days that, yeah, you definitely should go for it. Um, But it was either the second or third round, I remember seeing the pin, and I'm, I'm almost always just a go for it guy, but seeing the pin and thinking, okay, because of where there's a backstop there. Oh, this is the layup second round. Actually seems like it would be a superior play. And I think more guys did lay up. I didn't see the final numbers how they broke down of which which route was more advantageous. But watching that watching guys think through that even if you know that analytically you know, the, the scoring average is going to be lower if you just send three wood down at the green and, and basically it's a bit of a crapshoot where it lands. I think these guys still have a hard time not just saying, okay, well, look, I know I can hit an iron in the fairway and I know I can hit a wedge close. And uh, and what, the split yeah. of guys going forward or not was was really interesting. It asked each individual, because of that split, not really favoring either – uh, path and asked each individual, what are you comfortable with? What are you good at? Mm. And like some players are very good at hitting a stock six iron into a 56 degree wedge. Like Ricky Fowler was laying up every single day. You know, who isn't great with 56 degree wedges, Rory McIlroy, you know, who went for it every single day, Rory McIlroy, <laughs> at least I think he did every single day. It just asks players to show themselves. Who are you? Can you like? Are you comfortable hitting um, a five wood to a you know on a blind tee shot? Hopeful that you can launch it in the air, put some top spin on it, and then if you deal with hairy lies, like is that going to bother you? Are you good from a, a bunker where the green is above your head? It just asks players to to show themselves, and I, I I guess that was fun for me. Is like, who's a baller? Who's a who's a risk taker? And if you take a risk, how are you going to handle it? So I loved it. Rory went for it three days. He made par each of those three days. He laid up one day and made birdie. So ah, go figure. Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That was that day two 
kind of funnel pin, especially well, a funnel pin if you lay up. Back, backstop pin. I don't know if it's a funnel. Not a well, yeah, backstop pin, not a funnel. <laughs> pin. No, that's that's a fair correction. Uh, Sean, I like the way this course had guys hitting all their clubs to targets. The 300 yard hole seems sort of ridiculous on its face. Two 300 yard par threes, and then also a 300 yard par four, but. That means you get to see guys hitting five wood or two iron or three wood some days and roasting them at a target. They're so good. These guys are so good that that's kind of what we need to do. And partly that's a, a equipment and rollback discussion, but it's also just a skill discussion that these guys are so optimized that they require an incredible challenge to fully test them anyway we just don't see those clubs being hit into part of threes that often and i thought it was fun to do so i'll tell you what was good about that i think the shots the consecutive shots that reminded me that i'm an amateur and that whoever i was watching is a pro the shots that reminded me that I, holy shit, you're watching a pro golfers elite players were the two four irons that rory mcelroy hit on 11 and 12 uh, I stood behind the tee on both, and I think I was the only person that wasn't playing in the group or caddying in the group that stood on the tee for both. And Rory hit this just high, essentially kind of hooking, but like riding the wind draw on 11 with a four iron. Now this is a 295-yard hole, <laughs> and he pulls out an iron. It's downhill. Um, and it just, it, it, he plays it so far out to the right and it felt like, you know, when Bubba Watson does it, it's artistic, but when Rory McIlroy does it, you almost think like, oh, that's because he has to hit a draw. No, it, it that was art from an absolute power player. And then on the next tee box, he, it's an uphill par four that you have to hit to a certain area and, um, yeah, he just hits more of like a kind of a low stinging, probably had some backspin on it, uh, four iron. And to see just the same player hit two different shots, the same exact club in succession, um, that's the kind of stuff that you go to golf tournaments for because it gets lost when you're watching the pro tracer and you're watching on the broadcast. You got other shots in between. You're, you're paying attention to the, the leaderboard. You don't really have all the context. If you just go and follow Rory McIlroy, gosh, does he remind you that he is an absolute baller. <laughs> just couldn't quite buy a putt. Um, yeah, just to add to that, I would say Wyndham Clark hitting six iron off the deck that as he hits all of his tee shots on par threes to five feet on number four was definitely a a hello here I am moment mm -hmm. on Sunday and yeah that set the tone for the rest of his round or at least the rest of like his his alpha dogging throughout Sunday um Brooks Kepka's complaints were I thought legitimate I'm not sure that they were enough to form an opinion on the entire course like the collection yeah. area thing that he was talking about, yes, every tee shot on number three seems to end up in the same place unless you hit a horrific drive. Uh, similar to number eight, like there's a lot of different ways that you can hit three wood off that tee and end up 
with a very similar second shot. So I, I don't know that that's enough to have a complete gripe on the whole place, but I also think it was slightly overstated just how like pissed off he was about the course. I mean, I think if you, if you were there, if you saw Kepka talking about it, it was more just like a refreshing, honest conversation where he was like, yeah, you know, just don't really like it. Don't like this place that much. And I don't know if, I, again, that's partly vibe, and that's him wanting, like, U.S. Open crowds and everything. I got a question for you that only you can answer out of the two of us. Um, the beginning of this year, I think we both agreed that we were very excited about this tournament. Uh, we were kind of circling LACC as uh, something new, something we have not seen a major championship or a tournament hosted at in a long time that newness was going to be kind of, I don't know, it, it becomes a little intoxicating for our job. Uh, and, like, that's great. So we had circled that on the calendar. Rank your rank your favorite majors this year. Ooh. You've been to all three. Okay. Based off of the action, the golf course, and everything. I want, I'm just curious if LACC will be remembered as positively as people looked forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's so fresh, which means the things that I loved about it and the things that I was disappointed by are are both like really top of mind for me. Um, I don't know. I got I got to talk this through here, which is that I can't help but feel all right. Well, first the positive, like yesterday when we were walking down the final few holes. And it was this two-horse race. It was Wyndham Clark, who's an emergent stud, who's really good at golf, and I think will continue winning. And then it was Rory McIlroy, who was chasing. He was on the quest, on the doorstep, you know, so close to claiming this thing that he's been trying to claim for a decade. And the atmosphere had suddenly gotten better, and the fans were out in force, and everyone was excited. There was an electricity to it, and I felt like, God, we are so lucky to kind of be in this arena because you go from the long slog of a major week to now, all right, there's urgency. It's here, and it's just a matter of who's going to get it done in this moment. And I just felt like this is awesome, and this is a good venue for it. At the same time, I feel disappointed by all the stuff that people get turned off about golf, this, this idea that it's like a few people who are just you know, making deals behind closed doors and what ends up happening is the the little people kind of get screwed and, and don't reap any of the benefits and this whole clubby thing has a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. But yeah, I would say if I had to rank them right now, I think the Masters is number one. Okay. That Rom Kepka battle is just so good. And I still think I still think I liked the action here and the drama down the stretch better than the PGA. Mm-hmm. This might be a bias of a close finish, but there was a cool electricity to it. And at Oak Hill, I guess Kepka just took the air out of the balloon a little bit. It was an incredible performance, but from an entertainment and event perspective, I 
I'm leaning U.S. Open two and PGA Championship three, and I, I would like to revisit this idea in a couple <laughs> weeks. Uh, what I've really liked about the major season is that there have been winners and there have been losers, and I know you kind of wrote a bit like this about this on Saturday night, just how many people will leave the grounds of LACC with an L and not a W. Um, but Kepka lost at Augusta. He he blew it. He choked. He literally said that that's kind of what happened. He felt like he choked. Victor Hovland lost at Oak Hill. Now, he didn't lose it in the way that it was um, – like Kepka lost the Masters, but Kepka won and Vic lost. They were playing in the same group. It was very close throughout the day, and he bladed his uh, his iron shot from the bunker into the face of the bunker, and then that was done. That's an L. And then this week, Rory lost. Wyndham Clark won. Rory lost. And I guess Ricky, you could say lost, but um, there's a there's a defined L this week too, which is tough, but. Um, we just look across the rest of the, the sports world and it's either you win or you lose and golf world. Um, there's always one winner and just a lot of losers, but sometimes at these events, like we've had at majors this year, there have been very, very, very defined losers. And I yeah. think that context defines history. So something that I didn't realize until literally looking at the leaderboard right now is that Wyndham Clark, Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler finished gold silver and bronze they all finished the day exactly where they started it they each Same shot score. 70 yeah. 70 70 70 yeah and of those final few groups there was really no one that shot under par ricky shot five over harris english two over xander two over dj two over uh you gotta scroll a little way to get to riotaro nagano five over but the golf course got hard, and I, you know, the pressure ramps up. But I think, I think that firmness, the putts bobbling a little bit on the greens, things got hard. Even par was a pretty good score. Um, do you want to talk any more about Rory? Do you want to put a bow on his week? And yeah. again, it feels a little bit like St Andrews, where it's hard to really, it's hard to really say. This was like a choke. It's hard to say that he lost it, but it's also, yep. yeah. So how, how do you do? How do you make sense of that? Because you wrote a real, what I thought was a really good piece, a lot of good scenes in it, a lot of good analysis. Where are you so, at, Rory? Dylan, he shot the same score that he shot on Sunday in St Andrews, seventy, 70 strokes. Um, he bungled the fourteenth hole, which. He kind of bungled at St. Andrews, another par, par five, five. In both cases, yeah. Uh, I do believe, now I could be wrong about this, uh, but I believe off the top of my head since I wrote a book about last summer that um, through two shots into the 18th hole, he had 41 feet left for birdie uh, on, on both holes. <laughs> now, that could be wrong, um, but it was something like that. It was close. Um, the the true similarity is is what he acknowledged is that he did a lot of good not enough great and i think he even did less great this week than he did at st andrews different courses different scoreability um but rory hit every green uh at st andrews right like or he two put at every green. I can't remember what the exact stat yeah, was. Yeah, I like, believe he two put at every green. I believe he two, had thirty six putts. He had two two putt birdies, and that yeah. was it. Um, so that's the that's the 
a common through line. Did not putt well. He definitely hit it, I think, a, a bit closer on some in some cases this week. Um, but if it feels like St. Andrews to him, then it has to feel like St. Andrews to us in a way um, because it was there for the taking. Now, this felt more for the taking than last year. Like, like Cam Smith kind of ran away from him. Cam Smith was ahead of him was making birdies in the holes that would put pressure on Rory to make birdies on the same holes. And lo and behold, then suddenly Rory had to eagle the 18th at the old course. Uh, this was Rory trying to do that to Wyndham Clark. And I guess what we maybe learn if we combine the two is that, like, I don't know if Rory's a chaser or, a you know, a, a leader. And um, that commonality in the result – makes me wonder what is happening to him on Sundays that he can't make a putt and that he can't hit it close enough. Yeah. It reminds me as most things do of watching the Patriots um, and, and of watching Tiger Woods. And in both cases, they you're talking about teams or people with such superior, I guess with who are so confident in their game that they are willing to uh, simplify it and play conservatively and then take advantage of the spots where they think they have an advantage. And so Rory taking a conservative game plan and actually taking a little bit of a Brooks Kepka-esque approach, like he just punished fairways and greens on mm. Sunday. And it didn't. It seemed like he didn't force anything, which was good. Uh, a lot of good two putts from 30 feet. But... The key to that is picking your spots and executing in those spots. Like there's got to be a moment there in the fourth quarter where Tom Brady's got to drive. And now it's like, all right, you got to go do something for Rory. That means, all right, you have to take care of these scorable holes. You have to birdie six, you have to birdie eight, you have to birdie 14 and, uh, and to par eight. And then bogey. It's like the stuff before the obvious stuff for me like when you look at his scorecard mm -hmm. yes 14 14s is only bogey of the day it's a par five it looks really bad but if you're making the patriots analogy like when they make that comeback against the falcons it's sacking matt ryan to give tom brady mm. a chance like it's the stuff before this if it's rory hey the sixth hole and it's eminently birdieable you want to win a major you probably have to birdie that hole on sunday maybe you do you know the eighth hole, eminently birdieable. It that's the stuff before the late stuff. Um, it feels like if you look at St Andrews, his best two swings at the old course. Do you would you agree that they were seventeen t and then into seventeen green? Yeah, yeah. And back against the wall, Rory is like, I got no other options here. His best scoring, really most impressive to me, was late when his back against was against the wall he went three shots down and he's like i need to make like really gritty pars on 15 16 17 and 18 yeah some and really he, hard holes and he did he really did wyndham clark backed up to him but just didn't back up enough and so what is rory not doing on holes two through 12 the stuff before the stuff to that forces him essentially into a back against the wall play some good golf then but ultimately it's just not enough i guess to 
really torture this analogy. There used to be <laughs> games where you were, I mean, as a Patriots fan, a couple things would happen early on where you're like, ooh, that's not good. There'd be a missed field goal early on. Or, you, you know, you'd drive the length of the field, you'd have first and goal from the three, and you don't score. You settle for settle for three or you go for it and you don't get it. And you're like, well, look, we're still the better team, but I don't know, man. Like that feels like the sort of opportunity you have to take advantage of. Had that feeling a little bit at number three when he hit it in there pretty tight, by no means a kick in, but just a putt that is almost 50, 50 Um, when that doesn't go in. And then when the tee shot on six settles in a really hard spot and then all of a sudden, he doesn't have a good birdie look. And then that yanked little four-footer on eight. Like, there, those are the moments that you start to think, all right, it's getting late early because you only have so many looks during a U.S. Open final round. And those are a few places where you expect to get some looks. So I don't know. I truly have no way to make sense of how this round looked so similar to St. Andrews, of, of how... I guess I just don't really understand what the difference is between a good 20 foot putt that goes in and a good 20 foot putt that doesn't. <laughs> Bet you Rory's thinking about that right now. <laughs> it's like, you're not really expected to make any one of them, but at some point you expect one of them is going to go in. Yeah. I understand like strokes gained essentially is a measurement of, you know, in soccer, like expected goals, which is like, depending on where the, the soccer ball gets to within the the scoring area, like you will be expected to score these amount of goals. Depending on where you get your approach shots to, you'll be expected to make these amount of putts. And Rory's just, his expected goals are negative on Sundays. Uh, they're just not going in. He's not hitting the back of the net. And so... Um, all that aside, Sean, I just can't believe – I cannot freaking believe he finished second again. I can't believe <laughs> – like, he he lost a major by a stroke. It's just crazy. He's got to be so frustrated. Everything yeah. that's gone on, as well as he's played, to get himself to the edge there. I mean, like he said, no one wants me to win a major more than I do. And, God, he, he was right there for it. He hit it well enough to win the major. And – uh Wyndham Clark just earned it around the greens a little bit more. The uh, the only thing that you can look to optimistically is that the last year in which Rory McIlroy won a major, he won the Open at Hoylake. He is he has as good of vibes there as he can have during this nine year uh, pursuit of that fifth major title. Um, Hoylake is a you know it's a course that's gonna be scorable you'd have to think we'll see what the weather uh treats us over there in the west of england but um he's gonna have good vibes going in there and ultimately he had not visited los angeles country club until monday mm. <laughs> like he he was still learning this golf course monday tuesday wednesday he knows hoylake well he's got great vibes there um and that is the last major of the year so it's kind of put up or shut up he's going to be the only player in the field that has won a major championship at Hoylake before. How about that? Because Tiger's not playing there? Yep, nor is Peter Thompson or <laughs> Robert DeVicenzo. Vicenzo? Vicenzo. DeVicenzo. 
Divincenzo, uh, Sean, what do you think Divincenzo made for winning the 1967 Open Championship in Euro? Three three thousand euros. I guess in pounds, actually, is what I'm looking for. Three thousand pounds. Twenty one hundred. Mm, not bad, Sean. Rory made nine hundred seventy five thousand <laughs> in twenty fourteen. <2014. laughs> and this year is maybe gonna be double that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, probably um probably two. Million. Um is there anything else we need to address? I think good. Did we do a good podcast so far? Well, we will have to let the viewership decide that. But I think Justin Thomas is in a wicked spot. Um Yep. JT is a player I've followed a lot this year. He is now ranked 37th uh, in the rankings according to Data Golf. That ain't good. I think this performance that he put on <laughs> at a major championship, you know, a course with creativity, you would really would like his chances. I believe Max Homa said it on Monday, like it felt like playing in a practice round with JT, like he was going to shoot 61. And I don't, I don't know what the hell happened, but um, – there are some question marks about his Ryder Cup involvement. I don't know if you can keep him off the team, but right now the trending ain't good. Um, so there's something to watch there. His good buddy Jordan Spieth also missed the cut on the number. And then Phil Mickelson missed the cut on the number, which um, just meant we didn't get to talk to him, Dylan, and I was disappointed in that because the next time he will be in public – We'll be at Valderrama in Spain. I don't know if he'll get asked any tough questions there. And then after that, it'll be at Centurion in England, and maybe I'll be in attendance to ask him his thoughts on the future of pro golf. He had but those are the kind of to, things I needed to talk to. Yeah, he had promised to air things out a little bit, and he just said he didn't want to distract from the tournament. Friday, after missing the cut, if he had aired things out then, he still would have been. And maybe Sunday he would have been too. So I don't know. Phil, maybe just go on Instagram Live tomorrow. I know he's a frequent drop zone listener. Um, yeah, Max Homa, just a tough week. Really tough to watch that Friday. Kind of just implosion. I don't know what the right word is for it, but whatever it is. Playing in hard conditions in the afternoon, he made three double bogeys. He ended up missing the cut, I believe, by two. So he went from being really in contention after day one, shooting two under to missing the cut at what is likely the tournament he wanted more than any other. So that sucks. That's tough. Um, Onward and upward, Dylan. I'm going to England. I've got recommendations for bars from Tyrrell Hatton. I've got recommendations for golf from Tommy Fleetwood. I feel like that's all I need. Are you going to set up, like, are you going to have a round or two? Because when you go to St. Andrews, there's a couple obvious epic little places that would never host, like, an open championship, but that everyone wants to go play in the morning or the Mm -hmm. evening. Are you going to find a couple places for for when we come over? Yes. Uh, I believe the places are West Lancashire. (laughs) West Lancashire uh, is, like, the one that everyone loves. And then... uh, I believe it's Walls Wallsley is the closest one to Hoylake that people adore. So I will do my best to hook it up for you and all of the golf.commies. Fred Daly, nineteen forty seven. What do you think he made when he won it at Hoylake? Forty seven? Yeah. Gosh. 
during World War II? Well, Probably after, a whole lot. 47. Just after? We okay. Do a little. Two years after, sorry. Um, 800 pounds. 150. 150 <laughs> pounds sterling. <laughs> what a ripoff. Yeah, that's tough. What a great week. We had a great week. We've mixed feelings about everything, but for the golf.com team that was on site, I think we had a blast. Uh, we had a big crew there. Hopefully you enjoyed watching some of the, the YouTube nonsense we were up to. Um, if not, go check that out. There's a full like behind the scenes video recap of our week. Um, mostly check out the stuff we wrote on golf.com. That is, that's the stuff we, I guess is our bread and butter a little bit more so, but thanks for listening to drop zone. We love you guys. We appreciate you. We'll see you next week.